from WBEZ Chicago. It's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. And to explain the idea behind this week's radio show, I need to tell you about this date that one of the producers of our show, Jean Feltis, uh, went on recently. There was this guy who she talked to briefly after a rock show. And then the guy called Jane's friend Ray for her telephone number. And Ray is a really good friend of Jane's. And Jane says that Ray was all for this. Ray saying things like, you really should date this guy. Like, this is going to be great. And he would use these arguments like, he went to BU. I don't know what that, what's that Boston University? Yeah. Is that a good school? I don't know. I don't know either. (laughs) He was like, he went to to BU. He's friends with Joe Biden's nephew. Right, not Joe Biden. Mm-mm. Or Joe Biden's nephew. Jane is recently single, so she figured, why not? Might as well see what happens. But comes the night of the date with the friend of the nephew of Joe Biden. And things start badly. She's about to leave work to go meet him. And she gets a text message that he's going to be late. But an hour later, she gets another one. She waits. It, was, it had passed after after work drink time. And then it passed regular dinner time to, like, now 10 o'clock. And I thought, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt because you never know. Maybe he sh- would show up and he would be, he would have, like, a big shark bite or something. <laughs> Just to name one of the common reasons why people show up late <laughs> for dates. I don't know. <laughs> well, that would, I mean... <clears throat> it would totally explain it. It would explain a couple of hours. When the guy finally arrives, he does not have a shark bite, but he is 100% totally, completely stoned. They walk to a restaurant where the guy does not try to be charming. He does not really talk much at all. And then he kept doing this thing, I think because he was so stoned, but I'm not sure, but he kept doing this thing where I would be talking and uh, he kept like kind of half closing his eyes and then he would go, he would like shake himself awake and he'd be like, wait, sorry, what? I just tuned out just then. Over and over and over again. When the bill came, they each uh, took out credit cards. Jane figured they'd split this. Uh, Though when he saw her card, he put his away and let her pay for the whole thing. And then it was time to go. The guy asked if Jane wanted to smoke another joint. Jane pointed out that she hadn't been there for the first one. So uh, when you leave this date, uh, what are your feelings about Ray, who set you up? I mean, all kinds of stuff went through my head. Like, do you see me as so desperate? I mean, I'm really close with Ray. He's one of my best friends. I couldn't see how he put the two of us together. I just couldn't, I couldn't see how he thought we would make a good match. I started taking it personal, like, oh, there must be something really wrong with me if my one of my closest friends thinks this is the kind of guy I deserve. Well, you know, we should, we should call your friend Ray. I'd love that. Hi, Ray. Hi, Jen. Okay, I'll just summarize a little bit here of what happened uh, next. Ray was apologetic about how badly the date had gone, and he reminded Jane that he really didn't know that guy very well. And then we got to the big issue at hand. So, so, Jane, so Jane has a question for you, and if I could paraphrase the question, the question is, why did you think he would be a good date for her? The answer would be threefold. First, he was friends with Joe Biden's nephew, who is like a pretty good guy. 
Okay, you don't even need to hear the other two reasons. They made just as little sense as number one. But after talking for a while, Ray did finally explain the fix-up this way. You always get the guy who's too rough. This guy seemed like, since he had like a clean-cut haircut, and he's like a college guy, he was kind of like friends with the bad guys, so you could go out with the bad guys. He seemed like a normal guy, too. This is so crazy, because I had no idea you'd given it this much thought. Up until this point, Jane had no idea that Ray saw her this way, or that he felt so strongly about who she dates that he might actually try to fix it. When you set up your friends, you can't avoid revealing what you really think about them, things you haven't even told them. You're sticking your neck out more than they are when they go on the date. And so, we have for you today an entire show of people meddling, interfering, thinking they know what's best for others. We've got yentas, we've got busybodies, sometimes for good, sometimes for ill. Our show today, Matchmakers. We have three stories in three acts. Act one is a match done out of pure giddiness. Act two is somebody who matches up people who the most important thing they'll ever do together, they'll do the first time they meet. Act three is matchmaking between real children and plastic children. Stay with us. Act one, a good year for grand gestures. The matchmakers in this next story try to bring two people together who love each other. But there are different kinds of love and different ways to think about love. As they discover, Gregory Werner tells what happened. Once upon a time in Afghanistan, a tall, curly-haired man named Mohammed Saber saw a short young woman at his brother's wedding. He never said a word to her, but he was smitten. And normally, that would have been the end of the love story. In Afghanistan, men aren't allowed to talk with strange women. But this one was different. As the younger sister of his brother's new wife, she could visit Saber's house with her parents. Saber could even manage to sit next to her on the couch, which he did three months later. Was that the first time you talked alone to a girl that wasn't your sister? Yes. That is my first time. Saber speaks some English, but he brought along his friend, Dr. Wase, to help translate the rest. <laughs> it was a very delicious time for me. He said it was sweet and tasty? Yes. Yeah. It was sweet and tasty, and uh, his body also was shaking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And while he sat there, shaking, Saber told the girl she was very beautiful. The girl, whose name was Kotsia, told Saber he had nice hair. If it was possible, I will take your hair on my head. But you, she wanted to put your hair on her head? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> What did that what did that mean? Then she said that. What do you think? It means no he is in in love with her. All that flirting over the hair was racing enough by Afghan standards. But what happened next, says Saber, could have gotten him killed. He went over to his brother's house and he found Kotsia alone in her bedroom. And then, violating every rule he'd ever been taught, they kissed. After the one kiss, our love became stronger and stronger. The stronger their love got, the more secret they had to be. Saber was then 28, Kotsia was 18. They'd steal looks over the dinner table, quick glances, Saber says, like camera flashes. They decided to get married. I said for she, mm, I love you. 
She says, I love you. You can marriage for me. He says, okay, no problem. I wait for you. She said, I'll wait for you. Yes, yes, she is wait for me. Sabra needed about $10,000 to get married. $4,000 for her father for her hand in marriage, another $6,000 for the wedding itself. But Sabra doesn't make that kind of salary. He's a driver for a Dutch development organization. He saves maybe 30 bucks a month. At that rate, it would take three decades to raise what he'd need. So each year, Kutsia would wait, and each year, Sabra would tell her he didn't have the money. Four years passed. And then something happened which should have had nothing to do with either of them. Sabra's boss, Nikai Van Wies, went to a party at the Dutch embassy. There, Nikai met an American aid worker, and he fell in love with her. Her name was Miriam. Before that, Nikai had a pretty regular work relationship with his driver, Sabra. They didn't talk about personal stuff. But when Miriam moved in with Nikai, the mood changed. Miriam talked to Sabra as a friend. I was in the car with Sabra, and I asked Sabra, so... Do you have, are you married? Do you have a wife? Do you have kids? He said, oh, no, sir. He calls me sir. Oh, no, sir. This is Miriam. She's sitting at the dinner table next to Nikai. And so I started to, so is there a girl? Is there a girl? Oh, yes, sir. Uh, do you love her? Oh, yes, sir. <laughs> He's brownish, but he has a, he got a very he, red head. He can blush. He's the only Afghan I've ever seen who can turn beet red. Are you going to marry her? Oh, no, sir. I don't have money, sir. Here's how it usually works when a man can't afford the dowry to get married. He waits for his sister to get engaged. And then he uses the money she gets for her dowry to pay for his new wife. It's like dowry recycling. But Miriam found out that Saber's father broke that tradition. Because his father doesn't believe in selling his daughters. So the fact that Saber's father never charged a dowry for his daughters means that Sabr doesn't have any cash to pay for his own dowry. And that seemed particularly tragic to Miriam and Nikai, who were just beginning a fairy tale story of their own. Before they met, both of them were in unhappy relationships. The last place they expected to find their soulmate was Afghanistan. But Miriam had only been in the country a week when she met Nikai, and a few weeks after their first kiss, she was flying back to America to divorce her husband. Nikai flew to Holland to break up with his long-term girlfriend. It wasn't just love. It was that giddy, you-won't-believe-what-I-found stage of love. When you think things like, gosh, wouldn't the world be perfect if everybody could find this? It's when lovers are their most dangerous and prone to set you up with their friends. As Miriam planned her wedding with Nikai, she was bugged by Saber's story. I wanted to give them something, a heart gift, my mom calls it. I wanted to give them something that meant something to me that was more than a token. And so Nikai and I chewed on this for a while, and that, along with the fact that we didn't want any gifts, kind of gave us an idea. So we decided we had the idea of passing the hat around, so to speak, that instead of gifts, they could donate to the Saber Wedding Fund. We marry, he marry. If we get married, he gets married. But their friends are all aid workers, and they don't have much money to give. So it fell to Miriam and Nikai to scrape together the money Sabra needed. But in giving 10 grand to an Afghan that she'd met six months before, Miriam was breaking one of the basic rules of development work. 
In all her years in the business, she'd never given away even $100 to someone. One of her jobs is to certify new aid workers. That includes teaching them not to fork over their own cash, because you don't want people to always be turning to you to fix their problems. If one of my staff, if an expat came up to me and said, yeah, I'm giving $10,000 to this family because I really like them, I'd say, are you nuts? I would have said, you're crazy. Because, you know, we, I don't give money to beggars, not usually. I believe in the bigger plan. You know, funding hospitals and orphanages and education centers. You don't just give money away. That's just not what you do. So don't mess with the system. Yeah, you don't want to set that precedence of I give, you receive. And so that, that's, I guess, in some ways how this broke my personal rule. But Saber also broke the rules, she said, because he was the one who chose Kotsia. It wasn't a match made by his family, as almost all marriages in Afghanistan are. That appealed to Miriam. It felt like true love. He doesn't want any girl. He's really fixed on this one. Not anybody. This one. And I think that's, that's what originally drew us to him. It's unusual in Afghanistan. Um, and I like that. I, mean, I don't know. We've, it was felt like a, a, year, a good year for grand gestures. Uh, we were really excited about life in general, and um, we felt like spreading it out. Spreading it out and Saber seemed to be uh, the best direction to put it in. So Miriam and Nikai put $2,500 in an envelope, a sort of down payment on the girl, Kotsia. And they gave the envelope to Dr. Wase, Saber's friend, who also works for Nikai. And Dr. Wase took the money to Saber's house, and he sat down with Saber's family to arrange everything. And that's when he found out they hated the idea. They asked me, his father and his uh, sisters, they asked me, please talk with Saber. We are not happy with that girl. Turned out Saber's family knew all about the secret fling. They'd suffered for years the googly eyes the flash of the camera looks at the dinner table, and they thought Kotsia was a terrible match for Saber. They didn't worry as long as Saber didn't have the cash, but now he had foreign backers, international money from Nikai and Miriam. The family marshaled against the intruders. Even Wase told Saber to drop the girl. She was too short, he said. I told him to re- reject her and, <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, don't, don't be angry with, with her because Miriam and Nikkei, they, they are the same tall. Miriam and Nikkei are the same yes. height. Me and my wife, we are the same tall. And when you are touching with, with your wife, all the, the, the parts of your body will be separate from each other. <laughs> Saber sitting next to Wase on the couch, not laughing just looking down at his hands, giving me a full view of his thick, fluffy hair. In the end, it didn't matter how tall Kotsia was. Her father said no to the marriage. Saber was just a driver, he said, with a rented house. He wanted a better provider for his daughter. And so it was over. Saber was heartbroken, still single, and Miriam and Nikai were left wondering what would happen to their 2,500 bucks. Two months passed. And then I met again with Saber and Dr. Wase. And Saber told me this. And then I'm with a new girl. Saber had a new fiance. She's a very good, beautiful girl. She's beautiful. Yes, yes. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) The new girl's 22, he tells me, just like Kotsia is. But this one was chosen by Saber's sister. She's Saber's nephew's high school classmate. And everything else was done in accordance with tradition. 
Sabra met the girl's father. The father gave Sabra a bag of candy. Sabra gave the dad some of Miriam and Nikai's money. She is taller than the first one. She has nice hairs. And also they shoot me her photo. And you, you've never seen her? You've only seen her photo? Yes, I have seen the photo, not that she see. She. Sabra hadn't even seen the new girl, which made this a very different kind of love story. No secret kisses, no stolen glances, no tortured tale of young love. It felt about as romantic as a mail-order catalog, and Sabra sounded so practical. Are you in love with the new girl? Yeah. Now she's my wife. I love it. You do love her? Yeah, yeah, because she's now my wife. I won't play you the tape where I kept asking Sabra to compare the new girl to the old one. He got uncomfortable. I felt like a spoil sport. And finally, Wase told me to drop it. Look, he said, Sabra's 32 years old. He's never talked to any other women, let alone been in a relationship with somebody. Sabra thinks he was in love, Wase says, but it was something else. Pseudo love. <laughs> Pseudo love, you say? Pseudo love. Pseudo love. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we would call it lust, I think. It means the young boy, they will be thirsty, especially in Afghanistan. Wait, the boy is very thirsty, you said? Yes, and, and for example, when you drink uh, some things more and more, you are not thirsty. In European can- country or, or in your country, mm-hmm. it's very easy to talk with a girl. In Afghanistan, maybe 90% of love is, is wrong love. Nobody took Sabra's love very seriously. Not his family, not Dr. Wase, not even apparently Sabra himself. The only ones who left who believed the love story were Miriam and Nikai. Four months had passed since I'd last seen them. Nikai had changed jobs. They'd lost touch with Saber. They knew they were paying for a new wedding, but they didn't know the full story. So I sat them down on the couch. I have good news and bad news. Mm-hmm. Uh, the good news is Saber's getting married. Uh-huh. Miriam was eight months pregnant, balancing a cup of green tea on her stomach. I told her about the new fiancé, and she looked so disappointed. But does Saber like this new girl? Um, Saber hasn't seen her. <laughs> Uh-oh. <sighs> it's a crapshoot. That's not fair. He's going to be happy. I mean, his sisters checked the, you know, the girl out. They, they talked with her mom and... And, and they liked her and thinks that they are a match. But that's the problem, is that Sabra's a romantic guy. I think he has high expectations. If he were Mr. Joe Schmo, who w- didn't cry when he told a story or get the bad case of giggles, it wouldn't really matter if she wasn't the love of his life because he's just, you know, he's just another guy marrying another arranged girl and with no expectations. But that's not Sabra. Sabra's a... He's a sensitive kind of guy, and I think he expects to be happily ever after. And what if he's not? The way Miriam had seen it, Sabra was a man who'd glimpsed the promised land. The promise was true love, and she just wanted to help him get there. But now she has to face the fact that he was fine with an arranged marriage. Not just fine, happy. And by the end of our conversation, Miriam decided she was happy with whatever made Sabra happy. I just, I wanted him to see something he liked, 
go after it and have it be his. But baby, this is Afghanistan. I exactly. That's exactly the point. Uh. He he and she found what they wanted, and it was an unusual, out of the ordinary way of doing it, and they did it. They would have done it if if he had married that girl, but instead they just went back to the status quo. And that's not really what we were looking for. We weren't looking to fund an arranged marriage. We were looking to fund two people who fell in love. Well, just to make Saba happy as well. And to and make Saba happy. Yeah, he needs a wife. We we thought giving him, uh, you know, Benjamin Franklin's would uh, make everything okay. And it wasn't just that. It was a little more complex. It sounds like a development project. <laughs> <laughs> Saber says he's not planning to tell the new wife where their wedding money came from, at least not till well afterwards. For now, he doesn't want her to know that he's doing anything different from the way things are always done. Gregory Warner in Afghanistan. Since we first aired this story last January, Saber has gotten married in that arranged marriage and says that he is a very happy man. Coming up, fake babies, a fake nurse, and a bet that nobody wants to win. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. It's This American Life, I'm Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, Matchmakers. We've arrived at Act 2 of our show, Act 2. Part of me, why not take part of me? The woman in this next story was on our show briefly uh, once before, talking about how she donated a kidney as a good deed and lied to her own mother about it till after the surgery. But after that experience, this woman, who's an Orthodox Jewish woman named Chaya Lipschutz, started noticing all these ads where people were looking for donors, desperate people. And because she couldn't donate a second time herself, she decided to devote herself to rounding up potential kidney donors and matching them up with strangers in need of kidneys. She became basically a kidney matchmaker. Mary Robertson and Sarah Koenig co-reported this story, which Sarah tells. It's really, really hard to do what Hai is trying to do. She's trying to persuade people, alive people, to give their kidneys to people they've never met, who don't necessarily live anywhere near them, who have nothing to do with them. Needless to say, people like this are very rare. For almost a year, Hai posted ads on Craigslist in every state, under the Volunteers section, seeking kidney donors. Life is exactly the same. Oh, I should say, do you know? Life is exactly, okay. No, I could just say, life is exactly the same with two kidneys as with one. She updates the ads constantly, answers people who respond. I hope you'll be able to do this great act. Um, Just think of how proud of you, everyone who knows you will be. But even when someone says they want to donate, maybe they don't follow through. And every hospital has different rules, so people get rejected all the time for different reasons. Or maybe there's a problem with their tests, or a family member talks them out of it. It can be constant frustration and disappointment. And for the first year of trying, it was. None of Haya's matches went through. And then Haya got a break. This woman, Sandy, who heard Haya give a talk about kidney donation at a synagogue, called Haya up and said she wanted to donate and was all enthusiastic about it. And Haya was thrilled. She matched her up with this guy, Max. Their blood type was the same, and it was all working out. She was very excited about it because she happens to know the family, and she's, oh, I'm, you know, good friends with the daughter. And I was like, ah, oh, perfect. So even when I told her that I have a backup 
She didn't want to hear of it. You know, I, I, uh, this was her, her Besheret. This is the person that was meant for her. Besheret is a Yiddish word that means destiny, and it's almost always used for romantic matches. And that's kind of how Haya sees what she's doing. Not that it's romantic, of course, but that she's connecting strangers in the most intimate way possible. She hopes the people will bond. Maybe Sandy and Max will become like family to each other. Then, on the day of the surgery, when Sandy and Max were in the operating room, IVs in their arms and everything, they did a last-minute blood test on Sandy, and it showed a problem, and the whole thing fell apart. Haya was crestfallen. She left a message on my colleague Mary's machine, one of many, many long messages about the Sandy situation. Hi, Mary. Um, Hi, um, I spoke to the kidney transfer coordinator at the hospital. I, I, and and uh, is this a mess? Is this a mess? I get and then in the same message, Hi is on to her next problem. This older guy, Abe Salem, had been waiting for a kidney, but he'd gotten too sick for surgery, so she skipped over him. But now he was ready, and she wasn't sure she had a donor. She'd originally offered up her brother to Abe, but then when Abe got so sick, she matched up her brother with this other man instead, Mark Raymond. Now she's overwhelmed. I get clearance for Abe Salem. I didn't tell you that. Abe Salem was ready to have a kidney transplant. The one, oh, good grief. What am I going to do now? Now they're all over my back with Salem's family. Oh, my goodness. Um... It's crazy. It's crazy. So they want my brother now. Abe Salem wants my brother. Mark Raymond wants my brother. Um, and that's good. Okay. Bye. Hi is an unlikely agent for this line of work. She's not connected to a hospital. She's not a social worker. She's never been trained in the subtle ethical considerations that go into living donor transplants. To be blunt, she's eccentric. She's excitable. And she's emotionally involved with the cases on her list. She doesn't strong-arm potential donors, but she does nudge and cajole. And she doesn't offer money, which is illegal. But she does offer the promise that if you donate, people will think the world of you. You'll feel gratified. It'll boost your self-esteem. An expectation of quid pro quo, which might horrify a professional transplant coordinator. Frankly, some hospitals are wary of Haya and won't deal with her. But here she is, dedicating almost all her time, unpaid, trying to save these kidney patients. Within days of the Sandy disappointment, Haya has rebounded, and she's trying to match her brother, Yosef, with Mark Raymond. Abe, by this time, had dropped out again. If this works, it'll be her first successful match. Mark, hi, good morning, it's Haya. How are you? Mark is 56, a computer guy who's been unable to work since his kidneys failed. He has to be on dialysis for three hours, three days a week. Dialysis is pretty horrible. It's nowhere near as effective as a new kidney. People die on dialysis all the time. So Haya's constantly on the phone and the email, working out the details of a possible transplant for Mark. The problem with this case is that her brother is willing to donate, but he needs to do it by the following week because he has to get back to work. You know what? You can you can have to if you want my brother's kidney you're gonna have to go out to Staten Island not wait until next Monday or Tuesday because it might be too late. I'm just suggesting strongly if you want a kidney by next week. I'm sorry. Yes, yes. Um, if they can like make an tell them that you're either or, you're, or there's a possibility you won't get a kidney if huh. Mark Raymond and Yosef Lipschitz, Haya's brother, go to the hospital in Brooklyn for their final round of tests two days before the transplant is supposed to happen. 
Yosef, the donor, might be the sweetest man I've ever met. He's so nice, he thanks the nurses during routine questioning. All right. Any problems with your kidneys? Not much, I don't thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. He's never met Mark before, but they bumped into each other that morning at the admitting desk while they were signing in. Yeah, he said that, you know, very kind, uh, the daughter's uh, thing. I said, sure, my pleasure. And, um, you know, you discussed, uh, you know, from the old neighbor, he lives in Borough Park. I used to live in Borough Park. We discussed a little chit-chat and nothing special. We found Mark upstairs, waiting for his tests. Did you have a vision in your head of what Yosef would look like or, or how he would be before you met him this morning? Not really, but you know, he, he looks okay. He's not overweight and he's not, uh, he looks basically okay. So you were surveying him, like, like for his health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sizing him up like Obviously, a... I'd like, I'd like to get a healthy kidney so I can, you know, get on with my life. Mark is pretty worried about the transplant. Not that it won't work, but that it won't happen. He's been through this before. About a year ago, he got to just about this stage of a transplant when the donor's family convinced her to back out. He was crushed. Anything could go wrong, you know. Even now, I mean, uh, I coughed when I was being worked on by this lady inside, the nurse. She said, well, if you're going to cough, that means you have a cold. If you have a cold, you can't be operated on. And if they try to postpone it, then, then my donor's going to run away because he has a work schedule to keep up. So I'm not going to cough the next time. I, the next person I talk to, I'm not going to cough. So, um, uh, it's so tense. Yeah, that's right. Kai is at the hospital, too, making sure everything is moving ahead, making sure her brother's okay. I have, I have a yogurt for okay. you, and I brought us a, a couple of slices of whole wheat bread. You have to make sure your kidneys, you know, are going to stay in good health till Wednesday at least. She's a little agitated. Every few minutes, she's adjusting this bobby pin that's in the back of her long, dark hair, but that doesn't actually seem to be holding anything in place. And she's writing notes all the time on these little strips of cardboard that she keeps in her purse. I realize they're the things you pull off the top of a Kleenex box. The hospital administration arranges a photographer to take a PR picture of Mark and Yosef. It's a big thing for the hospital to have a stranger donate his kidney like this. So they put them next to each other on a bench, and it's incredibly awkward. They shake hands, pretend to meet again for the first time. Nice meeting you. <laughs> yeah. uh, hopefully everything turns out all right. And, uh, got any, got any hot tips on the stock market? <laughs> no, so far not. Hi is beaming. She's got her camera out, too. Everyone's feeling good. And Mark is starting to relax. Now I'm beginning to believe, God willing, that this is going to happen. Obviously, you know, I've, I've been disappointed before, but this time I believe this is, God willing, this is going to be. Seconds after he says that, Vicky, the hospital's transplant coordinator, walks up and says she's got to talk to Yosef and Mark. She says there's a little bit of a situation. We have a... Can I tape this? No. no. This is not good. Okay, okay. A drug called Plavix showed up in one of Mark's blood tests. It's a blood thinner he takes. They'll have to postpone the surgery until the following Monday, when the Plavix will be out of Mark's system. But Monday is after Yosef's deadline, when he's supposed to be back at work. Haya looks stricken. So does Mark. And then Vicky asks Yosef right there, in front of everybody, whether he'll still donate, even though he's said many times he needs to have it done by the end of this week. Yosef pauses and then says he will. That, that, was, that was hard that they told you that right while he's sitting there. You can't refuse. I can't refuse is number one, and luckily I have an open date sort of like next week. I just hope it's not postponed anymore. 
from too, just to have him sitting there, like, what can you say? I couldn't break his heart. <laughs> you know what I mean? Could you see that he was looking heartbroken? I felt it. I mean, I don't have to look. I just could feel it. Haya sometimes downplays what she's doing, but this is huge for her. Maybe her life's purpose. And in her circles, Orthodox Jewish circles, it's crucial that she have a purpose. I didn't realize this until I asked her what I thought was an innocent question, how old she was. I don't want to say. I don't want to say. They ask me another time. Wait, how come you won't tell me how old? I don't want to say. I don't know. I don't want to say. You don't want. You don't want in the story for anyone to know how old you are. Right. Do you feel uncomfortable with yeah, your age? You know why? Because why? I'm. I'm not married. So. And so, and and you know, it's like it looks strange. Somebody my age shouldn't be married. In her world, a Jewish girl finishes high school and then gets married and has babies. It's what her sisters did. What her girlfriends did. Haya came close, but it never happened. And now she's a woman of undetermined age, living with her elderly mother in a tiny two-room basement apartment in Borough Park, an Orthodox neighborhood in Brooklyn. is an anomaly here, and she feels it every day. She knows her landlady and the other tenants in the building probably talk about her. Uh, I, d- I don't know exactly what people are thinking, but, I, I, but I'm assuming, like, you know, they see, they look at me like, oh, she's not marrying. They probably feel, oh, that's terrible, or yeah, we feel bad for her. I'm sure they feel that way. I'm sure they feel that way. Yeah. You know, I, I, I kind of feel like an outsider in a way, you know, because um, I, I'm, I am different than them. And, and that must be hard, though, to, to feel sort of different or even judged or that people are out there like pitying yeah, you for yeah, something. Yeah, it does. It does. I, I do feel kind of funny about it. Like I, I sometimes I do wonder, oh, they pro- what are they thinking, you know, when they see me or whatever. They also could think of something wrong with me mentally, you know. But I, you know, I feel a bit for my mother kind of, you know, because like, you know, I'm sure she has people say, oh, so how many children you have and how many children are married and this and that. And, you know, I'm sure she'd love to say all of them. And, like, I know that, I know she, like, you know, probably kind of, you know, skips the subject. But, you know, sometimes she tells me now I know why, you know, what your, your, what your purpose in life is. And, and so she's, she sees that maybe this was my purpose in life. So because Haya can't call herself a wife or a mother, it's almost like to her neighbors she has no identity at all. She's had to find one, kidney matchmaker. But for that title to make sense, she has to actually arrange at least one successful match. It helps explain why she's so worried that something's going to go wrong on Monday, the day of the surgery. That morning, they do a final no, blood I mean, test on Yosef. You know what? But what if they, they took blood from him now? What if, what if they, they find out something like is what? not... I don't know, what do they take, a CBC now and all that? No, because listen, anything can happen, even the last minute. It's 6 a.m., and Mark and Yosef are in a pre-op room, separated by a curtain. A team of medical people is getting them ready. A doctor puts an X on Yosef's left side to mark which kidney they're going to take. Haya's checking in on both of them. She takes the opportunity to lecture Mark a little. Take good care of my brother's kidney when you get out of the hospital. Eat healthy, high fiber, low fat, huh? That's the condition. If you want my brother's kidney, you've got to take care of it and yourself. I'd plan on it. <laughs> Otherwise, he's going to take it back. I'm only kidding. <laughs> only kidding. Mark doesn't say anything. Yosef's surgeon arrives. All right. This is it. 
The moment of truth. Yeah, just grab the IV pump. Tell your sister you'll uh, see her later, okay? Okay. okay ready to roll? The nurse just asked Yosef if he's ready to roll, meaning, is he ready to have four small incisions to cut loose his kidney, and then a larger incision that the person with the smallest hand on the surgical team will reach into and pull out his kidney? The answer is yes. Yosef is ready to roll. Haya hands over a small holy book that she hopes will keep her brother safe. And as soon as Yosef is out of sight, Haya yells out to the surgeon. She's freaking out. She's still thinking this could all go wrong. How will I know when they start the surgery? Can somebody come out and say it started? No. What time is it starting? Usually it's going to start, I'd say, in about uh, 20 minutes from now. Because I don't want to leave. I want to know that it started. You know what I mean? I don't want to say, I don't want to hear that he backed out or something last minute. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) You know know what? Don't, I mean, it's not funny because I I know somebody who backed out the the day of the surgery. I hope they locked the doors there. Yosef doesn't run out of the operating room. And now Haya just has to wait. One of her older sisters is there, too, Eliza. They talk about the things you talk about when you're trying to pass five or six hours. Eliza has no trouble with this. She can really, really talk about her own operations. I remember when I had my tumor on my ovary many, many years ago, and they had to operate, they had to do so much cutting today. Thank the Almighty, they don't do so much cutting. About her bus driver on the way to the hospital. He made a whole big deal about my shopping cart. Take the stuff out of the shopping cart. You can't come on the bus with the shopping cart. And then I left, be well. Zyga's in, have a good day. Couldn't believe it. I don't know if he was Jewish. It doesn't matter. You know, it was nice of him to say that. About the kosher joke book she's written. Two pelicans went into a restaurant. It's a corny joke. And uh, they, they um, what do you call it? They ate a meal. And uh, they said... Where's the bill? The bill, they have a bill. (laughs) Two pelicans go into the restaurant, they say, where's the bill? And then, finally, it's over. Everyone's fine. They can go visit Yosef. And it's at this moment that what Haya has done suddenly becomes clear, most of all to her. For an instant, her single-minded kidney advocacy vanishes, and she's just a sister, looking at her brother, lying in the ICU. Hi, oh no, you look bad. He does look bad. He's barely conscious, and from the expression on his face, it seems like he's in too much pain to even speak. Are you in pain? Yeah. Uh, the, um, the, did they tell you to squeeze some pain medicine? Oh. No. Should I ask them to do something? Yeah. Excuse me, can, what are they going to do for his pain? Haya had worried about this, about how much it would hurt him, how he would handle it when he woke up. She goes back out into the hall. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm gonna be okay. <laughs> Feel bad that he's in pain. Yeah. She says he's not in pain, and then he's just very tired. Looks like he's falling asleep, which is good. But let him sleep, maybe. And just like that, Haya snaps out of it. If she had any doubts about her purpose after seeing Yosef, they were fleeting. She goes back into his room and spends the rest of the day with him in recovery. After a couple of nerve-wracking weeks of complications, the transplant took. Yosef went back to work. And Mark did, too. A year later, they're not really in touch. For her part, Hai is still at it. In the past year, she's made two other successful matches, saved two more lives. 
And now she's not so anxious about the whole endeavor. She's proved to everyone that she's a bona fide matchmaker. Her mother is very proud. Sarah Koenig is one of the producers of our show. She co-reported that story with Mary Robertson. I'm a stranger, but I love you. Act three, babies buying babies. Anna Baker always wanted to be an actress. When she graduated from college, the only acting job she could get in New York City was at a toy store, F.A.O. Schwartz, where they had salespeople put on costumes to demonstrate various toys. And this is where Anna Baker accidentally got into the matchmaking game. For the first few weeks, I rotated from toy to toy so that Chad, the FAO toy demo manager, could analyze my acting strengths before placing me on a specific product. I demonstrated anything from robo-transformers to plush puppets. There was a preschool veterinarian kit, and it came with a stuffed puppy and doctor tools. For six hours, I was supposed to fake diagnose an inanimate object and get other people excited about it. I would interrupt families as they strolled through the store. Spot is sick. Will you help me figure out what's wrong with Spot? And then I would hand the child a stethoscope while the parents waited impatiently. I might as well have said, you and your family want to be left alone, but I'm an actor. After two weeks of rotating, I was assigned to the Lee Middleton doll collection. This was a coveted position. Lee Middleton dolls were special. We were told that they were made with materials developed by NASA. They looked exactly like real babies, and they were weighted in the head and in the bottom so that they actually flopped like real babies. Every day I dressed in a nurse's uniform, and I worked with two other nurses slash actresses in the Adoption Center, a small cottage on the second floor of F.A.O. Schwartz. A typical day of work would go as follows. Parents and their children would go from incubator to incubator admiring all the babies. If they decided that they were serious about adoption, we would open the gate to the white picket fence that surrounded the cottage and invite them inside. We would sit across from the prospective parent, usually a seven-year-old girl, in one of two rocking chairs and begin an adoption interview. Do you promise to love and care for the baby? Will you read to the baby? Will you change the baby's diaper? Yes, the little girls would answer with sincerity. And then the final question. What would you like to name the baby? The girls always chose frilly names like Princess Tiffany of Fairy Flowerland. We would write Princess Tiffany on the doll's hospital bracelet, along with the date of birth, which usually happened to be the previous day, and then we would fill out a birth certificate. We would hand the birth certificate to the little girl's parents and say, now all you have to do is pay the adoption fee. Wink, wink. We were instructed by Chad never to use words like cost, purchase, or buy. He said that that would, quote, break the illusion of the world, unquote. When work got slow, us nurses weren't allowed to socialize. According to Chad, that would also break the illusion of the world. Instead, if we weren't working with a customer, we had to always be holding, rocking, or bouncing the display baby doll. The display baby doll was on display for a reason. It could not be sold. Something terrible happened in the factory on the day of its birth because the doll's fingers were not like the other babies. 
They had been molded together, making it look like it had flippers instead of hands. As if that weren't bad enough, it had curly red hair, scary green eyes, and its head weighed at least five pounds more than all the other babies' heads. As a result, when you lifted the baby, its head would automatically flop back and its little flippers would flip up, like a monster baby. Which is how the doll earned its nickname. We called it Nubbins. And because Nubbins was for display purposes only, he didn't have an incubator like the other babies. Instead, he was kept in a cupboard. This was especially disturbing because Nubbins had a knack for looking realistically dead. So when you'd open the cupboard, you'd find him slumped over onto his enormous head, with his arms flopped behind him, like he'd died in a yoga class. September and October are traditionally slow months at FAO Schwartz. And with no customers to attend to, we spent a lot of time holding, rocking, and bouncing baby nubbins. So much time that we actually started to resent him. So to entertain ourselves, we invented a game. Actually, I invented it, but the other girls went along with it. The object of the game was this. While a nurse was working with a customer, you had to try and get her to break character by doing something horrible to baby nubbins. For example, I'd open all the drawers to all the cabinets in the adoption center, and while another nurse was doing an adoption, I'd carefully walk down the aisle and rock Nubbins' head into the jagged edges of each drawer while humming a lullaby. It was fun to torture Nubbins in front of each other, but it was even better when there was a crowd of people standing outside the adoption center. It took real comedic timing. You'd change Nubbins' diaper on the diaper-changing table. Then you'd carefully lift him. You'd gently place him on your shoulder and burp him ever so slightly. And at just the right moment, you'd drop him. It worked every time. Everyone watching knew Nubbins wasn't real, but when he hit the floor, they still jumped and gasped. And the best part was that they did it in sync, so it looked like a minor earthquake had just occurred. That is how us nurses spent our time. We'd sell overpriced dolls when we had customers, and we'd torture nubbins when we didn't. And then one day, everything changed. A few months before I started working as a toy demonstrator, two girls from the MTV reality show, Rich Girls, came into FAO Schwartz with a camera crew and adopted a baby. On November 15th, the episode aired. By 9 o'clock the next morning, every mother on the Upper East Side had to have a Lee Middleton doll for her child. There was a line of anxious parents and spoiled children outside the store. We were doing adoptions left and right. Gone were the days of horseplay and pranks. This was real work, and it was exhausting. Do you promise to love and care for the baby? Will you read to the baby? Will you change the baby's diaper? What do you want to name the baby? Fill out birth certificate. Repeat. Business was so good that no one saw it coming until it was too late. Within a week of the episode's air date, we sold out of all the white babies. That's right. We sold out of all the white babies. All we had left were incubator upon incubator of minority babies. The manager of F.A.O. Schwartz had a conniption fit. With Christmas only five weeks away, the Lee Middleton factory was already on back order. 
there was absolutely no way to get a new shipment in until mid-January. Day after day, the same scenario would repeat itself. Eager mothers would rush to the adoption center. Is this the Lee Middleton doll collection? They'd ask. Then they'd stop, dead in their tracks. I'd watch their heads go from incubator to incubator. They'd pause briefly at the Asian baby. Oh, no. And then, trying as hard as they could to be politically correct, the mothers would look at us and say, Do you have any other shades of babies? Chad, the toy demo manager, had prepped us with a response. He'd taped a memo in the women's locker room reading, If the mothers express a disinterest in the babies due to ethnicity, kindly inform them that while these are all the babies we have in stock, there's a wider selection available online, and they are more than welcome to order online. But this is not what the mothers wanted to hear. These dolls don't look like my little Susan, they'd explain, pointing to their child. I want something that looks like Susan. Wink, wink. Us nurses decided to make the most of the situation, and so we invented another game. If a mother didn't want to adopt a doll because of its ethnicity, we worked on her child. It was pretty easy. First, we would ask the little girl if she wanted to hold one of the babies. Wow, we'd exclaim. This little baby has really taken to you. You look like you'd make an excellent mommy for her. The little girls would gently stroke the babies while the mothers would look at us in a state of panic. You could almost hear them thinking, Why are you doing this to me? What did I ever do to you? The other game we invented stemmed from Chad's memo. Instead of saying, There's a wider selection available online, we would try and say, There is a whiter selection available online, without getting caught or breaking character. In spite of these games, the situation still depressed me. I remember one mother in particular. She was in her mid-thirties with blonde hair and a pinched face. When I offered her a Hispanic baby, she looked at me and said, Oh, come on. We don't want a dark child. What would people think if Jessica was carrying a dark baby? She touched my hand and looked into my eyes. You know what I mean. I knew what she was trying to say. She was saying that since we were both white, I understood her. But what she didn't know is that while I'm fair-skinned, I'm actually half Mexican. And besides that, I did not know what she meant. Did she honestly think that if someone saw her daughter carrying a Hispanic baby doll that they would think that Juan, her gardener, had knocked her up? There were so many things I wanted to say to these mothers. But that's when it sucks to be employed because the customer's always right. So instead of speaking up, I took my hand out from under the pinched-faced woman's and said, You are more than welcome to order online. There's a whiter selection available online. But this was only half of the story. Technically, we hadn't sold out of all the white babies. Technically, we still had one left. Nubbins. As a result, when mothers would rush to the adoption center and realize there were only minority babies, they'd immediately notice Nubbins. They'd spot him in our arms, round and pudgy, with a head of red hair. He was the answer to their prayers. Can I see that baby? They would insist. All we ever had to do was turn Nubbins around. His head would flop back, his flippers would flip up, and the mothers would quickly say, Never mind. 
This happened so often that eventually us nurses decided to make a bet. Who do you think will go first, baby nubbins or all the minority babies? To be honest, when I've told this story in the past, and I've told it a number of times, I've said that I bet on the minority babies because I thought nubbins would be the last to go, if he'd go at all. And then what I'd say happened was that Nubbin sold first, leaving behind an entire toy nursery of minority babies, and isn't that crazy? But that wasn't exactly true. What actually happened was much harder to admit. It was this. The minority babies did start to sell, slowly. First, we sold out of all the Asian babies. Then we sold out of all the Hispanic babies. And finally, all we had left was nubbins and incubators of black baby dolls. This just made us all feel worse. Inadvertently, the bet had become, who do you think will go first, nubbins or every black baby in the nursery? I stood by my initial bet. We'll never sell nubbins, I insisted. And then, a week later, a mother marched up to the adoption center. Nurse, she yelled, is this some sort of a joke? Her face was frozen in disgust. In one hand, she was holding a Bergdorf shopping bag. With the other, she was dragging a very solemn child. Where are all the white babies? I wasn't used to the mothers being quite so direct. We're all out, I said. (laughs) You have got to be kidding, she began. And then her eyes focused on Nubbins, who was nestled in my arms. What about that one? she asked. I turned Nubbins around, slowly for full impact. His head flopped back, his flippers flipped up. I waited for her horrified response. We'll take it, she said. What? I thought, Nubbins? You want to adopt Nubbins? Was Nubbins even up for adoption? I opened the white picket fence and escorted the mother and her daughter over to the rocking chairs. I set baby Nubbins in the solemn little girl's lap, sat in the seat across from her and began. Do you promise to love and care for this baby? The little girl looked up at me. No. I had been doing adoptions for two months now. I had interviewed hundreds of little girls. No one had ever answered no before. Technically, she had just failed the adoption interview. For lack of a better response, I ignored her answer and I moved on to the next question. Will you read to the baby? No. Okay, I said, moving to the next question. What would you like to name the baby? Stupid, she said. While I wasn't exactly Nubbins' best friend, I wasn't about to write stupid on his birth certificate. Why don't we try calling him... Just name the baby Veronica, her mother interrupted. I scribbled Veronica in the name section of the baby bracelet and birth certificate, and then I handed the paperwork to the mother. As they walked away, I laid out a pink blanket instead of a blue one and set Nubbins in the center. For the last time, his head flopped back and his little flippers flipped up. That's when it hit me. Nubbins has been adopted. There will be no more Nubbins. A little montage in honor of the doll began to play in my head. There he was, being tossed across the adoption center by Jenny. There was the time Carla had accidentally rocked on him with the rocking chair and a crowd gasping as he tumbled onto a marble floor. It had never occurred to me before, but I loved Nubbins. 
And if I sold baby nubbins, what it meant was just too depressing. I mean, after all the weird comments from our customers about our baby inventory, I still didn't want to face what it said if a factory reject monster baby was adopted before a whole nursery of perfectly cute black babies. I tried to think of ways to prevent this. I thought about lying and telling them nubbins had already been purchased. I even thought about buying nubbins myself. I imagined what I'd say to my dad when I called him to borrow the $120. Um, Dad, there was this baby at the adoption center and he was about to go to a bad family and I think that I could be a good family. And then I looked up. The woman and her daughter had returned with their receipt. Reluctantly, I placed baby nubbins in the little girl's arms. I'm sure baby Veronica will have a wonderful home, I lied. As she and her mother walked out of the store, I watched Nubbins' head bobbing on her shoulder until I couldn't see them anymore. Anna Baker performs her stories on stage around New York City, and she has a book coming out, The New York Regional Mormon Singles Halloween Dance, a memoir. I've seen love go by my doors, never been this close before. You're gonna make me lonesome when you go. Well, our program was produced today by Jane Feltis with our senior producer, Julie Snyder, and with Alex Bloomberg, John Jeter, Sarah Koenig, Lisa Pollock, Robin Simeon, Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Adrian Mathewitz runs our website. Production help from Seth Lind and Emily Youssef. Gregory Werner's reporting trip to Afghanistan was funded in part by an International Reporting Project Fellowship from the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Thanks today also to the Downstate Medical Center, to Doris Udelman and Jeff Seidman. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia, who is always stopping me in the hallway to share his feelings about me. If it was possible, I will take your hair on my head. And um, what exactly does that mean? It means, no, he is in, in love. I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of This American Life. PRI, Public Radio International.